Hello, welcome to the European History Podcast. My name is Daniel. If you like the series, you can follow us on iTunes and like us on Facebook at the European History Podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or corrections, you can always email at the European History Podcast at gmail.com. This is the last episode on Greece. We're going to finish uh, by talking about Hellenistic culture, uh, some of the big points that occurred. And I'll end this episode by reading uh, a passage from Plato on the role of women in his Utopian Republic. Uh, And we will end for there. Next up will be our discussion of Rome. So in the last episode we talked about the Macedonian conquest of uh, King Philip and Alexander the Great and the uh, early death of Alexander from a fever at the age of 33 and the quick division of this great empire into five different kingdoms. But with the survival of this uh, Greek influence and this uh, kind of cultural uh, push from uh, Greek uh, ideas into Egypt and Babylon and the Indus River Valley. So what were some of those Greek cultural influences on this larger region of the earth? Uh, we refer to it again as Hellenistic culture. Uh, Hellens was the Greek term for Greek, uh, so that's why it's called Hellenistic culture. Uh, the empire of Alexander the Great and the uh, following kingdoms ended the political independence of the polis. So ironically, in that way, one of the most fundamental aspects of Greek culture is over. It's destroyed when we get into this Hellenistic period. And therefore, this uh, political change marked a shift in Greek culture away from politics and away from endeavors in foreign affairs and towards other aspects of culture. And I'm just going to, we're going to quickly just move on through different aspects and the major events that they experienced. So first, philosophy. We've talked about Plato, we talked about Aristotle, we talked about the, the cynics, but two major schools that rise up in uh, Greek culture are Epicureans and the Stoics. Aristotle's, after the Macedonian conquest, Aristotle's Lyceum shifted away from the universal sciences and towards literature and history. Plato's academy drifted towards kind of a kind of a more uh, stronger skepticism that was focused on highlighting the weaknesses of other schools of thought. So it was kind of a, a negative philosophy. It's it's, uh, it's it's suggested that nothing could be known, uh, that there was no convincing case to be made that you know you could have knowledge of things without relying on undefended premises. And therefore, nothing could be known at all. So the skeptical school of, uh, of, that emerged from Plato's academy is kind of critical of the idea of knowledge in itself, or at least whether humans can be in possession of knowledge. Uh, so they suggest that nothing can be known at all. And as a result, if you don't believe anything can actually be known, the suggestion leads that nothing matters. And that becomes a hallmark of skeptical thought. But this allowed skeptics to have a sort of peace in the sense of being able to simply accept the world as it is without trying to, say, figure it out. Because from their mental, psychological, intellectual perspective, you can't figure it out. 
Now, a skeptic isn't the same as a cynic. And now the cynical school, uh, however, continued, and they continued rejecting social norms. They didn't accept human society as it was. They didn't accept the world as it was. They advocated, they continue advocating more natural lifestyles. They would continue breaking social norms in terms of what, we, what they would understand as indecency. However, neither of these two schools really attracted many uh, your average Greeks uh, city, city dwellers who were uh, understandably looking for something to believe in, something to kind of center their life uh, in, their, in their current lifestyles. Now that the polis no longer kind of was filling that space, they were uh, conquered. So two schools that rose up that at least tried to start filling that space now that the the political philosophical space was gone. One is the Epicureans. Epicurus suggested that the purpose of life is not theoretical or empirical knowledge, if either the, either of those things is even possible, but rather human happiness. And I'm reminded here of kind of the competition between the Enlightenment versus the Romantic periods of philosophy and European intellectual history, but we'll, we'll get to those later in the 18th and 19th century. Right now, we're talking about the Epicureans are saying, well, ha human happiness is the real purpose of human existence. It should be our intellectual pursuit, not knowledge in itself. The Epicureans suggested that sense perception is the foundation of knowledge. What we perceive through our senses, what we see, what we smell, what we feel, what we hear, what we taste. They also suggested that a person no longer exists after death, and therefore you have nothing to fear once you die because you, you won't experience um, the actual moment of death itself. Nothing happens to you after your body dies. They did believe or propose that God, the gods existed. However, they suggested that they don't have any interest in human affairs, and so this leads to a practical atheism, and most people kind of just assumed that the Epicureans were functionally atheist. They said, like, gods exist, but they couldn't care less what we do, what we believe, or and they have no role in what happens to us. The Epicureans, they suggested that the ethics of a human life is, base, is based around and, and gravitates around that concept, again, of human pleasure, and, and that is happiness. However, and most people, do, most people have heard the term Epicurean, but uh, the Epicureans tend to define pleasure in a way that might be a little surprising to some listeners. They suggested that pleasure, you are, you are in a state of pleasure if you simply don't have any active pain coming against you. Not being, uh, having your senses, you don't have to have your senses being actively stimulated and pleased. That's not necessary for pleasure. You just need to not be bothered by something, either physically or mentally or emotionally. So the Epicureans say, if you have no pains or disturbances, that is human happiness. You, you're there. And the ideal condition for a human is to have uh, enough modest resources to be allow you to withdraw from the world and society without any pain, no troubles, no responsibilities. And they also suggested that you shouldn't start families. You shouldn't have a wife or children because that's going to give you pain. It's going to give you troubles. Or a, or a husband, I guess, in that way, also. So that is the Epicurean suggestion, and that was popular. 
Also, uh, competing with the Epicureans uh, in the marketplace of you know intellectual philosophical ideas in the Hellenistic Greek culture were the Stoics. Uh, the Greek Zeno from Citium, he started the Stoic school soon after Epicurus. They're, again, they're trying to fill that kind of demand uh, for something to center people's lives or recenter their lives. The Stoics, uh, their thought was really linked in a way to the Cynics uh, through Socrates. They taught that humans have to be in harmony with themselves and with nature. And they, and they say that nature is God. There is a God or gods, and, and that is nature. The Stoics suggested that there was a divine reason and the fire was the guiding principle of nature and everyone has a part of that in themselves and after you die, your part of that divine fire and reason would return to an eternal divine spirit. And so the Stoics are actively deistic. They believe in a god or gods. The Stoics believe that, the purpose, and, that purpose and happiness comes from a virtuous life and striving towards the positive virtues that matter uh, and not vices or other qualities that aren't either good or bad, uh, such as you know wisdom, temperance, courage, uh, and prudence. And this reminds me in a sense of the Kantian ethics, but we'll get to that later in the historical period. The Stoics suggested that passion is, passions for those other things such as you know being full with good food and and humor and laughter and these the, these values are not really virtues and they say that these are basically human passions and human passions are a disease of the soul according to stoics and and the stoic ultimate goal is to get rid of those passions and focus on the positive virtues of wisdom and temperance like i said and that kind of reminds me a little bit of the, the Buddhist and Four Noble Truths, but we won't go into that. The Stoics were also cosmopolitan. We discussed that before, in the sense that they believed that the whole world was one, basically one big city-state, and that all humans are connected. However, like the Epicureans, they suggested that a solitary life was, was best. And they tended to say that you don't need to be engaged with the community because they had the sense that the community is focused around those passions that aren't really helpful. And even in, in political questions, the, the politics of the cities or, the, or the, the kingdoms were focused around things that they thought didn't matter in terms of virtue or uh, human happiness. For Stoics, the ultimate internal goal was a kind of acceptance, a harmony with nature, and ultimately they believed that that would lead to a, a type of apathy. So it seems like you need to be apathetic about the world. If you care too much about it, you're probably going to care for some reason that isn't virtuous. You, you care because of some uh, passion that doesn't really help you get happy. And so this is like, be more apathetic, basically. S moving on to literature, briefly, uh, the, the kind of the capital, the new cultural capital or hub of the literary movement in Hellenistic Greece shifted to Alexandria in Egypt with the great library and a museum was constructed that housed all of the great older works of Greek um, achievements and authors and this practice of literary criticism became very widespread and the genres of history and chronology became very prevalent. These, the Greeks became 
started to get an interest in kind of getting a timeline out of, of major events that had happened and trying to preserve those. Of course, a lot of that will be lost with the fire, of the great uh, fire of the library. In terms of sculpture, with the increase in the economic activity that we discussed after Alexander kind of raided the treasuries of Persepolis and this increased trade between the Greek city-states and the other kingdoms, with this increase in economic activity, new building and sculpture became possible. New cities arose that had to be filled with art and sculptures, and so there's this demand for more architecture, more sculpture, etc. And this followed a, a uh, this uh, led to new cities had to be built, and they usually followed a grid pattern. And sculptors they would accept you know business opportunities or art opportunities to be paid uh, from anywhere in the Hellenistic world, and this kind of led to a kind of a spreading of a one style of, of of sculpture, a uniform style, across the various Hellenistic kingdoms. The sculpture of this time, it moved away again from the topic of that tension versus idealistic portrayals uh, and more towards more emotional, realistic, kind of human portrayals. In math and science, uh, there's a lot of achievements, and they were encouraged by a few different factors that had come before we dis that we discussed. Uh, the endeavors of Plato and Aristotle and Alexander the Great's natural curiosity for geography and all, all topics, really, they helped push forward the sciences and the mathematical investigations. This also, also the intercultural kind of just mixing of Greek with Egyptian and Babylonian culture and knowledge also helped push it forward. And also, the increase in economic activity, wealth being available uh, to invest in these investigations, these kind of uh, scientific mathematical works increase to help push forward math and science achievement in Hellenistic culture. These achievements are going to form basically the found. It's this is important to note because gonna this time period in this uh, understanding of math and science that gets done is going to be the foundation of knowledge for Europe until basically the scientific revolution in the 1600s CE. And so what goes on here is kind of, this is what we've got for a long time. Archimedes, uh, as an example, he pushed forward with ge uh, investigations in geometry. He uh, investigated the lever. He developed the science of hydrostatics. He, um, there was a mixture with Babylonian astronomical tables with these math and geometrical uh, understandings, and this allowed Heraclides to suggest that Mercury and Venus circulate around the sun and not Earth. He suggested a version of heliocentrism also, and but this uh, contradicted Aristotle's view, and it seemed to contradict common sense, obviously, because when you wake up, you see the sun moving, quote-unquote, and you don't, you don't feel like the Earth is moving, and if Earth is moving, why don't we feel it moving? So it, it kind of contradicts our common sense and intuition. So it does not, heliocentrism does not become, you know, widespread and accepted. Rather, uh, geocentrism continues to be the, the popular theory, and it starts to try to account for the astronomical tables and the data that they become familiar with from 
these other cultures. And they said, well, and they try to come up with these complicated models that would make it work for the Earth to be uh, the center of the solar system. Um, and so they are bend over backwards to try to match the common sense of the sun moves and we don't, even though that's wrong, and the data that had been observed. So geocentrism continues to be the popular theory, but it may surprise you know, some listeners that you know heliocentrism, the idea of the sun uh, being the center of the solar system, it, it is before the year zero. It is in... Hellenistic Greece that this idea is coming about and maybe in other cultures as well but, but it's certainly it's not uh, all the way up into the 1400s 1500s with Galileo or Copernicus um, other aspects we have um, Eratosthenes in the 200s BCE he calculated the circumference of the earth to within 200 miles and that also might surprise you so like the flat earth theory is is being disproven before zero, before the year zero, a long time ago, maybe longer ago than a lot of people have thought. So he calculates the circumference of the Earth, obviously suggesting the Earth is round. It's a severe, it's a sphere to within two hundred miles. The Earth is about twenty four thousand miles around the equator, so that's pretty close. Greeks also engaged in mapping of the uh, of the known world. Uh, at, after these conquests, geographical conquests had happened. Finally, uh, to give a short conclusion about this Hellenism and this Hellenistic culture and, and basically to wrap up Greece for us, Greece was the, probably the most unique and special and important uh, and powerful thing about Greek history is the democratic systems of government in Athens and other places. Although it was flawed, you had to be an adult, local, free male uh, from that given city-state to have access to the democracy. If you had access to that, if you were fran enfranchised to, as a citizen of the city-state, your power was really significant and deep. It was direct democracy. You had a vote on every decision. You were a legislator as a citizen. You vote on the laws. As a citizen, you could be drawn up by lottery to serve in these various government offices, be it a judge or the leader or a military commander or a member of a jury, etc. So when Greece emerged into the classical period with this democracy, we see also a flowering of science and philosophy and the political thought and art and literature and, and beyond. With the coming of the Macedonian conquest and Alexander the Great and the Hellenistic Age, we see the destruction of that political way of life, but, and the history becomes more difficult because we don't have major historians that talk about the Hellenistic period like we had Herodotus or Thucydides. And with the Macedonian conquest, we see the, the incorporation of the Greek city-states into a monarchical empire that was later divided into those different kingdoms. After Hellenism and our next discussion for this, this poor part of the world, including Greece, is going to be uh, ancient Rome and the beginning of uh, classical Rome, the Roman Republic, and finally the Roman Empire. So I hope uh, you've enjoyed that. If you have any questions about Greece, I'm not going to talk about it again. But to finish up here, I'll go back to classical Greece for a second 
And I'll close this episode by reading you a passage from Plato talking about the role of women in his kind of ideal utopian republic. And I'll start that passage now. If, then, we use the women for the same things as the men, they must also be taught the same things. The person he's conversing with says yes. Now, music and gymnastics were given to the men, yes. Then these two arts and what has to do with war must be assigned to the women also, and they must be used in the same ways. On the basis of what you say, other says, it's likely. Perhaps, I said, compared to what is habitual, many of the things now being said would look ridiculous if they were to be done as is said. Indeed they would, he said. Well, I said, since we've started to speak, we mustn't be afraid of all the jokes of whatever kind the wits might make if such a change were to actually take place in gymnastics, in music, and not the least, in the bearing of arms and the riding of horses. Then, I said, if either the class of men or that of women show its superiority in some art or other practice, then we'll say that that art must be assigned to it. But if they look as though they differ in this alone, that the female bears and the male mounts, we'll assert that it has not thereby yet been proved that a woman differs from a man with respect to what we're talking about. Rather, we'll still suppose that our guardians and their women must practice the same things. And rightly, the other said. Therefore, my friend, there is no practice of a city's governors, which belongs to women because she's woman, or to man because he's man, but the natures are scattered alike among both animals, and woman participates according to nature in all practices, and man in all. But in all of them, woman is weaker than man, certainly. So shall we assign all of them to men and none to women? How could we? For I suppose there is, as we shall assert, one woman apt at medicine and another not, one woman apt at music, and another unmusical by nature. Of course. And isn't there then also one apt at gymnastics and at war and another unwarlike and one no lover of gymnastics? I suppose so. And what about this? Is there a lover of wisdom and a hater of wisdom and one who is spirited and another without spirit? Yes, there are these two. There is, therefore, one woman fit for guarding and another not? Or wasn't it, a, wasn't it a nature of this sort we also selected for the men fit for guarding? Certainly, that was it. This is Plato making the case that women uh, could have roles that men have in his perfect society. Hope you've enjoyed so far. We're going to move on to Rome in the next episode. This is the European History Podcast. My name is Daniel. Thank you.